0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. After spending three weeks on the introduction to this little book, this morning we're going to actually look at the text of the book, and we're going to look at the prologue this morning, which covers the first four verses. Let me remind you of just a few things that we already talked about. The book of 1 John is not a personal letter. It's not written to an individual. It's not to Timothy or to Titus or to Philemon. It's, there's, it, there's no reference here to uh, a single church. So it's not like written to the Romans or the Galatians or the Ephesians. There's no reference to who the first recipients were of this epistle or where they lived. There's no greeting or other introduction, and there's no author's name included anywhere. Now I said in our first introduction that I believe that 1 John was written by Lazarus, okay, a.k.a. John Eliezer, the same writer who wrote the fourth Gospel. The best guess of when this was written is between AD 60-65. We believe it was written from Jerusalem and sent out to the province of Asia. It was a circular letter. It was intended to be passed around to various churches in Asia. The only thing that can be said for certain about the intended readers of this letter based on the letter itself is that they were Christians. And I think that's pretty significant. He, and I'm using Young's here because Young's brings this out clearly. These things I did write to you who are believing. Okay, These are believers he's writing to. All right? Very important. So even though we don't know who the first recipients of the epistle were, or where they lived, we know something very important about them. They were believers. Now, unlike the fourth gospel that was written to bring people to faith in Christ, this epistle is written to those who already trusted Christ, and it's instructing them on how to have fellowship with Yeshua and the Father. So I see the purpose of this letter as fellowship. And that's very important as we look at some of these difficult texts in this letter to understand he's writing to believers. They've already trusted Christ. He's telling them how to enjoy fellowship. So that's why John is writing, to enable believers to appreciate and to deepen their fellowship with Yahweh. Now, the historical situation that this epistle deals with is there had arisen false teachers in the churches of Asia Minor. Remember, Paul met with the Ephesian elders. He told them, "After my departure, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock." So we believe this is literally the fulfillment of that. Um, They considered these false teachers considered themselves as intellectual and the spiritual elite, and many scholars identify them as the Corinthian Gnostics. They were in fact claiming a superior anointing from the Spirit of God. They believed that they had a knowledge and a revelation from God that was almost an improvement on the Gospel message that had been revealed through the Lord and the Apostles. So these false teachers had left the churches and they were taking followers with them. We see this in 1 John 2.19. He says, they went out from us. And us being... Uh, many say the apostolic circle but i think it's wider than that it includes the disciples it included Lazarus different authors but the core of believers he says they went out from us but they were not of us for if they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain they are not of us so they were they had a different idea they had a different doctrine And they had left them and they were going around spreading this doctrine. So this letter is written to urge the believing readers not to be led astray by those who had seceded from the Christian community and to reassure them that they are in the truth. So John wrote to his children in the faith to make sure they were able to spot and resist the error that was going on and they would be able to remain in fellowship with God. Now, The prologue of 1 John is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel, except the Gospel is 18 verses. This is only four. Many of the themes found in the prologue to the fourth Gospel are related to the themes that occur here in 1 John. Both prologues introduce the reader to important themes that are going to be developed as we get into the letter. Now, there's only one other New Testament book that contains a prologue that's anything like these two in John and 1 John. And that is the book of Hebrews that has four verses as a prologue. That's also the only other verse that doesn't name the author. So it's interesting, you know, yeah, the only other book that doesn't name the author, you know, other than John, 1 John, Hebrews. Now, the prologue of 1 John emphasizes the physical reality of the person of Yeshua when He was in the world. And this is because these false teachers Held to a docetic view of Yeshua. They regarded Christ as a phantom or a spirit. All right? Now, this prologue, as you you look at these four verses, it requires that the author was an eyewitness and a contemporary of Yeshua. Someone so close to Yeshua that he saw him with his eyes, he handled him, he touched him, They, they were spent time together. And Lazarus fits this very well as you know from the Gospel. all right. These first four verses of 1 John are considered by most grammarians to constitute one long, complicated sentence in the Greek. Hall Harris writes this, Certainly the four opening verses of 1 John constitute the most difficult and complicated Greek in all of Johannian literature in the New Testament in terms of structure. R. Brown says, The initial four verses of 1 John have a good claim to being the most complicated Greek in the Johannian corpus. Alright, so knowing the difficulty that lies ahead, let's jump in, okay? (laughs) Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now this verse begins with a series of four relative clauses. What? 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 What, what. Each beginning with the neuter, singular, relative pronoun. You can't really see it in the ESV here, so look at the um, New American Standard, and you'll see it here. What was from the beginning? What we have heard? What we have seen? What we have looked at? So John doesn't begin the phrase, He who was from the beginning, but what was from the beginning. And the impersonal form here is deliberate. He's talking about Yeshua... But the person of Christ is not the theme. The theme is the message of Christ. All right, That's what's important. Now what beginning is he talking about here? He says, what was from the beginning? Well, conservative scholars are divided over the interpretation of this phrase as they are on just about everything. And some see it as parallel with 1 John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. They also see it, as a parallel with Genesis 1, in the beginning God created. Now in Genesis, the beginning is a reference to the creation of the world. And in the context of the prologue of John's Gospel, the beginning means time before the creation of the world. However, in the context of the opening verse of 1 John, the beginning has a different meaning. In our text, this is not a reference to the eternality of the Son of God. It is obviously an allusion to Genesis 1 and to John 1, but here it refers to the beginning of Yeshua's public ministry. All right, He's stressing here physicality. We touched Him, we saw Him, we looked, so He's stressing the beginning of the ministry of Christ. This phrase in this context refers to the beginning of the disciples' encounter with Yeshua. The beginning here is the same beginning that Mark talks about In Mark 1.1, he says the beginning of the Gospel of Yeshua the Christ, the Son of God. So John is using beginning in verse 1, as he does later in the book, to mean the beginning of the Gospel. We see that in 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. So the thing that they're talking about at the beginning is the beginning of the Gospel, the message that was put forward. When John describes the word of life as what was from the beginning, he's speaking primarily of the word of life incarnate in Yeshua. Not the word existing with God from the foundation of the world, but he's talking about the word incarnate when he became a man. Now John's emphasis here is that the gospel message has not changed. It's the same message that has been proclaimed from the earliest days of the Christian ministry. Because that's what these cessationists are trying to sell. No, we have higher knowledge. We have more of an insight thing. And he said, no, no, we're sticking with the fundamental message that was preached in the beginning. Also, the emphasis in the rest of verse 1 is on Christ's humanity. So John's point would be that his message is not a new message. It's not the message of the Gnostics. Rather, it is the old message that has been proclaimed from the earliest days of Christ's ministry, which as far as the Gospel of John is concerned, the ministry of Yeshua began at his baptism. Because John doesn't have any infancy narrative. So he's talking about from the baptism of John, moving on. He says, what we have heard. Now, who is the we here? You wouldn't believe the arguments that go on and on of who the we is, all right? Some suggest that the repeated use of the first person plural in in these first four verses is not a genuine plural, but it is equivalent to a first person singular and refers only to the author. So what they're saying is, so when John says we, he really means I. Okay? Now, John could have used it that way. We could be editorial to represent himself personally, but it seems more likely here that we represents John and the other eyewitnesses the apostles, the other disciples, the original ones who were there with Christ. They're one group. They hold the same doctrine. What we have heard. He says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes. Now heard and seen are both perfect active indicatives which emphasize abiding results. John was asserting Yeshua's humanity by his recurrent use of the participles related to the five senses. He says, what we have heard. So John is saying, I was there. Okay, When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, I was sitting there. I heard him preach it. I heard him teach the parables. I heard him preach in the synagogues and on the hillside and in the various houses. I was there. I was there when he preached the Olivet Discourse. When he said, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. I knew he was talking about my generation, not some future generation. I was there, I heard him, and I knew he was talking about us. See, I slipped a little preterism in there, okay. Now, why does he add with our eyes? I mean, is there another way to see things? Why does he add that? How else would you see? Well, he adds with our eyes to show that he is not talking about a mystical vision. You know, sometimes we say, oh, I see, meaning I understand. That's not what he's saying here. He says, I saw it with my eyes. I was there. All right. He's actually watching Yeshua as He lived before them. Now this again is in the perfect tense, which suggests a complete seeing with an ongoing impact. He saw the whole perfection of the revelation of Christ before Him. He saw it with His own eyes. So, just think about this, Lazarus, John Eliezer, he was there when Yeshua cast the demons out of people. He saw it happen over and over. He was with the Lord when these things took place. He was there when Yeshua reached out a hand and helped that lame man that hadn't, that's born lame and hadn't walked for 38 years. And the guy just jumped up and walked. He was there when Yeshua touched the eyes of the blind and the guy saw. He was there when He put His hand over the ears of the deaf people and they heard. Lazarus was was with Him when Yeshua and the disciples were heading into the city of Nain and on the way in there, they ran into a funeral. And there's a dead guy in the casket and he's the only son of the mother and she's a widow. And so the Lord stops the funeral procession, says to the man in the casket, I said, man, arise! And he gets up and starts talking. And Yeshua says, take care of your mama. He was there. He saw that. He saw him turn water into wine. He saw him feed 5,000, walk on water. He was there when Yeshua came up to the boat, when they're in the water, and Yeshua gets in the boat and they turn around, the boat's at the dock. He teleported them all to the dock. He said, I saw it with my own two eyes. I'm an eyewitness. He says, We have looked at and we have touched with our hands. Now, looked at and touched here are both aorist indicatives, which emphasize specific events. And looked at as not just a repetition of what we have seen with our eyes. This is from the Greek verb theaomai, and it means careful, deliberate vision which interprets the object. John uses this word in his Gospel in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Theaomai. John is saying we walked... He walked among us and we saw His glory because we saw Him do all these miraculous things. He says, we've touched them with our hands. Touch means to closely examine by feel. The Greek term for touched here, selaphaō, is also found in Luke 24 in the account of the resurrection. When the Lord says to him, see my hands and my feet, that is I myself, touch me and see. So He's saying, you know, examine me. Use this word of the resurrection when He appeared to the disciples. He's, so John is saying, listen, Yeshua lived with us. We physically put our hands on Him. He's writing this and He's telling us, I was an eyewitness. He was not a phantom like the cessationists say. He was a real man. He was the God-man. We remember this story of the disciple whom Yeshua loved in John 13. He says, one of the disciples whom Yeshua loved was reclining at the table at Yeshua's side. So They don't sit at tables like us. They're sitting on the floor and He's literally laying on Yeshua. And so Simon Peter motioned to ask Yeshua of whom He was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Yeshua, said to Him, Lord, who is it? So we see that Lazarus was in this close, intimate relationship with the Lord. And he used three of his basic senses, hearing, eyesight, touch, to highlight the reality of who Christ was. So his readers would know that he's not speaking metaphorically. Now the false teachers denied the humanity of Christ. The Docetic Gnostics held that Yeshua was not a human at all. He was a prolonged theophany. And the Cerinthian Gnostics considered Yeshua the natural son of Joseph and Mary, upon whom the Christ came at his baptism and left before the crucifixion. So he's, that's who he's battling here. John is telling us the Son of God was physically tangible. It was possible to see Him, hear Him, gaze upon Him, touch Him. Four times he refers to what he has seen or looked at, twice to what he has heard, twice to what he proclaims. Clearly, he wants to underscore that what he is bearing witness to is no figment of the imagination. It's no invention of his. He says concerning the word of life. Now the word concerning here from the Greek word peri was often used to introduce topic of the discussion. And I think that's what he's doing here in this opening verse. This is the topic of discussion. Now I want you to notice the difference between the New American Standard Bible here compared to the ESV. Just in the highlighted words there. Do you see the difference? What's different? Okay. Very good, class. The New American Standard capitalizes word capitalizes life all right that is an interpretation that is not a translation okay there's no capitalization in the greek they're capitalizing it because they say well this must mean you know this is yeshua this is a word for yeshua word here they're taking as a personal name for the lord so that's why they capitalize it now this is no doubt influenced by john 1:1 Where we read, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, all translations that I looked at capitalize it here. That's because in verse 14, John says, the Word became flesh. So we know the Word he's talking about is Yeshua. So it's a personal reference to Him. Personal name of our Lord. Now, many take that and they make it the meaning of 1 John 1.1. But as you look at the context of 1 John 1.1, particularly verse 2, you see that the subject matter is not word. That's not what he's talking about. The subject matter, the emphasis in 1 John, is life. The word of life. Word here is the Greek term logos, which means message. So the word of life here probably refers to the message about Yeshua, namely the gospel. John refers to Yeshua as the life In His Gospel. So we're used to that. In John 14, 6, Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. So Yeshua is the life. And the message about Him is about life. The Gospel brings life. Now the phrase here, the word of life, in our text, seems more likely to describe the message about the person who is and personifies life. So, word there is just meaning message. It's not, a, it's not a personalization of the Lord. Life would be... If you wanted to capitalize life, I think we could live with that. All right, Because that's what it's talking about. The message of life. Look at Acts 5.20. He says, Go and stand in the tabernacle and speak to the people all the words of this life. That's the Gospel. It's a message about life. And in 1 John 1.1, life is the title of Yeshua. Just like... In John 1 1, word is a title for Yeshua, but here it's not, it's just the life that is the title. All right, now let's move on to the second verse. He says, The life was made manifest, we've seen it, we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, this verse is a parenthesis and it's defining life. This parenthetical comment explains. What the, to the readers that when John says what, 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 in the four relative clauses, he's referring to the word of life. It is the word of life that was from the beginning. All right, the beginning of the Gospel. Which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked on with our eyes. Now, he uses the verb manifest here. He says the life was made manifest. It's used twice in this verse and both are aorist passive indicatives. The passive voice is often used of the agency of God the Father. So the term manifest, fanarao, implies to bring to light that which is already present. The aorist tense emphasizes the incarnation of which the false teachers denied. See, he says it was manifest, it was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now, the word manifest is used by John to express the theological term of the incarnation. I know you're all familiar with that term, incarnation. All right, it comes from in plus cargo, meaning in fleshment. It's the act of assuming flesh. Yahweh chose to become united with true humanity. And in the incarnation, the Lord fulfilled scripture from the Tanakh, which taught that the promised Messiah would be both human and divine. It taught his humanity as a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. Yahweh speaking to David says this. Now this is interesting in 2 Samuel. You read this and you say, well, he's talking about Solomon. Well, he is, but he's also talking about Solomon's greater son, the Lord Yeshua. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. That's Solomon and that's Yeshua. Okay, they're both offspring. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. That's not Solomon. That's Yeshua. Okay, Yeshua's throne is established forever. He says, I will be to Him a father, He shall be to Me a son. When He commits iniquity, that's not talking about Yeshua, that's talking about Solomon, I will discipline Him with the rod of men and the stripes of the Son of men. So in the Tanakh, it talked about the Messiah being a human being, the Son of David. But it also talked about the Messiah being divine. Look at Micah 5.2. This is a Christmas verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from a mole from ancient days. So he's coming, he's always existed. He's coming into being in the Incarnation as a man. At the Incarnation, God the Son, The second person of the one triune God was forever joined to true humanity. Now this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. The Council of Chalcedon put it this way, Our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, in two natures, Inconfusedly, unchangeably, invisibly, inseparably, the distinction of natures by no means taken away by the union, but each nature being preserved and concurring in one person, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. So they're okay, we have a man with two natures, God and man. All right, He was the God-man. There's no, never been anything like that before, never been anything like that after. He is the God-man. Now, in calling Yeshua here eternal life, he says the eternal life which was with the Father. He's referring, he's referring to Yeshua because John remembered the words of Yeshua in John eleven twenty five 25 when Yeshua said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, he shall live. Now, notice that John says, that the eternal life, which was with the Father. Like in John 1, this is an assertion of Yeshua's pre-existence. Deity has been manifest as a man. So to know Yeshua is to know Yahweh. Now we've talked about this so much going through the Gospel that I'm sure you're familiar with it. The word with here, which was with the Father, indicates that this being who is eternal... And His eternal life Himself is distinct from the Father. All right, he was with Him, so that, that shows us there's a difference there. This is talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. That we have one God who exists in three persons, equal in one, yet distinct in their person. He's talking about the second Yahweh. That's what the Jews would have called Him, the second Yahweh. They see Him all through the Tanakh. And the readers would have realized that the second power was Yeshua. Yeshua was Yahweh in human flesh. You know, one of the greatest controversies of the early church was centered around the deity of Christ. That controversy goes on today, still, which is crazy. But Arius, a heretic, taught that the Lord Yeshua didn't possess eternality of being. Eternity was not one of the qualities, he said, of him. He taught that the Son had a beginning. He was the greatest of the creatures of God, and he was responsible immediately for the creation of other creatures, but he himself had a beginning. So he denied the eternity of the Son. Now at the Council of Nicaea, the Arian doctrine was denounced by the Christian church, but it didn't end. It still went on. It continued to have great influence. And finally, in the Council of Constantinople, the doctrine of Nicaea was affirmed again so Arius doctrine and the do, Arius doctrine was there was a time when he was not that doctrine was refuted and the Christian church came solidly to stand behind the fact that there was not a time when Yeshua did not exist People if you understand he's God that should be easy to understand right God didn't have a beginning Yeshua's God he didn't have a beginning he always existed he came, he became a man at a point in time but he always existed as God so John is telling us that Yeshua possessed the same essential nature as the Father. And those councils affirmed the fact of homoousia. You all know what that means, right? Homoousia? Come on. We've gone over that many times. One essence it means. One essence. Meaning that Yeshua was the same essence as the Father. They declared the deity of Yeshua the Christ. And the people, this is an important doctrine. Because so many today have this wrong. Jehovah Witnesses, they deny the eternality of the Son. So in a sense, they're Arian in their Christology. They deny the Trinity. They deny the deity of the Son of God as well. The Mormons also deny the deity of the Son of God. They speak of Him as the Son of God, but they deny His eternity. He had a point of time where He began. They deny the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. Anyone who denies the deity of Yeshua or the Trinity, is not familiar with the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? Uh, You hear that so much today. Oh, I don't think the Trinity... You don't know much about the Bible then. Okay? Because if you go back into the Hebrew Scriptures, you understand the Trinity is there. Now, five times throughout the Tanakh, Yahweh is called the cloud rider. Now, that was a term that was used for Baal. Baal was called the cloud rider. So when the writers of Scripture use it, they're saying, no, no, Baal's not the cloud rider. Yahweh is the cloud rider. Okay, Yahweh is the true God. So five times in the Tanakh, Yahweh's called the cloud rider. But in Daniel 7, there's an exception. Daniel 7, he, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now here, the rider on the cloud is the son of man. That's a human. Dominion is given to the son of man. The second cloud rider. Now we see a discussion about this in Matthew chapter 26 when Yeshua is arguing before Pilate. And the high priest stood up and said to him, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Yeshua remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. So he says, we want to know. Are you the Christ? So then Yeshua gives the high priest this answer. He said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Yeshua said, You're going to see me riding the clouds. Wait a minute. That's a designation for Yahweh. And he knew that. So what Yeshua is saying in this text, I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. What was the high priest's response? Ah, oh, come on. You're just kidding us, right? No, he said, Then the high priest tore his robe and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You now have heard his blasphemy. See, he said that Yeshua had blasphemy because he said he would come on the clouds. And the high priest knew only Yahweh rides the clouds. He knew that Yeshua was claiming to be Yahweh. And people... This high priest is smarter than a lot of churchianity today because that's one thing the church doesn't seem to get, that Yeshua is Yahweh. And that's vital, people, because Yeshua said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Let's go on to verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua, the Christ. Now, the you here is the recipients of this epistle who were believers. You've got to keep that in mind. He's writing to believers. They had not known Yeshua in the flesh. In other words, they hadn't walked with Yeshua. They hadn't seen Him. So they're hearing the message from the disciples. The disciples are carrying the message to them. Look at Acts 10.40 and 41. He says, But God raised Him on the third day and made Him appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses. So, not everyone saw Christ after He rose from the dead or saw Him before He rose from the dead. So they are taking the message John wrote so they could enter into and to continue in this intimate fellowship that the disciples and the apostles had enjoyed. This verse introduces the purpose of this epistle in verse 3 here, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That's why he's writing. This is a on Purpose Clause with a present active subjunctive. So what this is saying is the main theme of this epistle is fellowship with God. That's what it's all about. And what we need to understand here, I think is very important, that John expresses this idea of fellowship all through this epistle in different ways. Now, he only talks about fellowship with Yahweh in verse 3 and in verse 6. One of the most common phrases that he uses is in him or abide in him. He uses that a whole bunch of times. I got all the verses here, but I'm not going to read all these references to you. They'll be in the notes if you want to look them all up. Another expression for fellowship is to have God or to have the Son. These are all synonyms for fellowship. And to know God has the same idea. So when he talks about knowing God, he means knowing him in an intimate sense of fellowship with him. Zane Hodges writes this, It is an interpretive mistake of considerable moment to treat the term fellowship as though it meant little more than to be a Christian. I think that's very important to understand. In John's mind, there may be Christians whose fellowship has been damaged so that they are not at the present moment in fellowship with the Father, in fellowship with the Son. John is not writing to his adversaries. He is not writing to lost people. He's writing to Christians, and he's trying to tell them how to have fellowship. He is writing to his little children so that they can have fellowship with with their God. Now, such fellowship is not automatic. Okay? So important to understand. It's not automatic. The Greek word used here for fellowship, koinonia. Koinonia. The word literally means to share in common with. We use the word community, which is a pretty good translation of that Greek word, to be in community. It means that we share life together. When you're in a community with people, you share things with that community. Koinonia was used in classical Greek language as a favorite expression for the marriage relationship which is the most intimate bond between human beings. So we understand that there's a sharing of everything. And the use of the word in Acts 2.44, I think, is really helpful. It says, all who believe were together. And they had all things in common. Koinonia, fellowship. They shared everything together. Everything. John says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now, that's a bold statement. And he's saying, listen, believers, we share life with God. Now, that would probably take some of John's readers a step back, maybe. The Greek mindset prized fellowship. It was very important to them, but they only saw fellowship as between men and men. The idea of an intimate relationship with God was something they didn't consider. God was up there, out there somewhere. But believers, what He's trying to teach them here and what He's teaching us is we share life in common with Yahweh. We commune with Him. We fellowship with Him. We have that opportunity. When Christians who are not eyewitnesses of the physical manifested eternal life come to accept John's testimony concerning Him, they begin to share fellowship with Yeshua and with the Father that the disciples have known. He wants them in that same fellowship with Him. What John is saying here is there is no significant fellowship fellowship among people who do not share the same view of Yeshua. Shared doctrine is the basis of Christian fellowship. You understand what I'm saying there? you got to be on the same page doctrinally if you're going to share fellowship with people. Now, I'm not talking about every doctrine. I'm talking about the doctrines that matter, the major doctrines. Fellowship requires and rests on information, a common body of knowledge, mutual acceptance of the data. When John wants to cultivate fellowship with a group of people, he writes them a letter filled with theology. Because theology matters. This implies that there is no true fellowship people with those who do not hold the same confession about the Father and the Son. Fellowship literally means sharing in common. And where people deny the basic confessions about God that the Word and the Gospel affirms, friendship or meaningful relationships can exist. I and mean, we can get along with them, be friends, we can have meaningful relationships, but there cannot be be Christian fellowship. You can't fellowship with people who deny these fundamental doctrines. As I said in the past, just because somebody holds to the preterist view of eschatology doesn't mean that they're our brother in Christ. We have no fellowship with those who hold to baptismal regeneration. It's a different gospel. Those who are Unitarians, Universalists, Israel only, we we can't have Christian fellowship with those people. Because they believe doctrines that are not taught in the Word of God. They deny the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith, and we are not to support them. Look at what John writes in his second letter. He said, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So, what are they not abiding in? The teaching, the doctrine, the truth of Christ. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching that John is laying out, watch, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Now what does he mean, don't give him any greeting? Don't say hello to him? The idea here is you're not wishing them the best. You're not, you know, God bless you, you know. None of that stuff because he says whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Listen, they're teaching a different doctrine we're not too... Fellowship, we can't fellowship with that because they've departed from the teachings that the Scripture has laid out. And to greet them is to take part, John says, in their wicked works. You're supporting that evil that's going on. He says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Yeshua the Christ. Now our text, I think one of the implications here is this implies that no Christian should marry an unbeliever. Okay, I mean, that's important. Listen, if your relationship with God has any meaning to you, then why would you want to marry somebody who had no relationship with God? What, what would you commune about? What would you share together the things of life, the most intimate relationship in the world, a marriage relationship, and you're missing the most significant part because it's God who makes a marriage? And I've seen so many people make that mistake. Listen, don't get involved in missionary dating okay i think it's a farce all right find somebody who already loves the lord okay or share the gospel with someone your own sex okay so you're not you know tempted to get involved in that because people listen this is just so important to have a marriage built around fellowship with god now notice the two prepositions here with they represent two distinct prepositions And they're in the original text indicating a distinction in persons within the Trinity. As well as an indication of the writer's consideration of them as equal. Our fellowship is with the Father. Our fellowship is also with the Son. Alright, we have fellowship with both. This syntax affirms the equality and the deity of Yeshua. It's impossible to have the Father, Yahweh, without the Son, incarnate Yahweh. You know, and isn't it amazing that one of the largest preachers, (laughs) I mean population-wise and size-wise, teaches that the Jews don't need Christ. They have their own doctrine that will get them to heaven. They don't even need Christ. I mean, Hagee, what a farce. This guy is ignorant of the Bible and he's teaching Jews don't need Christ. Who was the first church made up of solely? For the first ten years of the church, there was nothing but Jews in the church. So everything Yeshua's teaching is to His people, Jews. And hey, He comes along and says, oh, they don't need the Gospel. And Christians, amen, brother, keep preaching. People in the pews need to get a Bible and start reading it, okay? That's why it's so important you read the Bible. Because you're not supposed to believe what you hear from the pulpit, okay? Without checking it out. Now, when I say something, I'm not asking you to reject it or accept it. I'm just asking you to pick that and put it in there, and we'll examine that later. Okay? The worst thing you could ever say, oh, the pastor said, who cares? He might be wrong. And you're just following someone who's parroting some stupid stuff down the road. Examine it for yourself. You're responsible as a believer because you have the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. Get in there and see, is that true? Is that right? Our fellowship is with the Father. Our fellowship is with the Son. Two persons, two divine persons, one God. Now watch when he closes this prologue. He says, we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. These things refers to the whole epistle, what he's writing. Everything he's writing, as the readers entered into and continue in intimate fellowship with God, they would have joy. So what he's saying here, listen, Joy is the product of fellowship with God. I believe most Christians try to find their joy from the world. And that's why they're so miserable. Joy comes from fellowship. This joy is an abiding sense of optimism and cheerfulness based on a relationship with God. As opposed to happiness, happiness is a sense of optimism and cheerfulness based on circumstances. And listen, people, I guarantee your circumstances are not always going to be what you like. Okay? Guarantee you. Fullness of joy is possible, possible for the Christian, but it's by no means certain. See, John wrote with the desire that believers would have the fullness of joy, and if it was inevitable, he wasted time telling them how to do it. They needed instruction so they could enter into the full joy. Look at what Yeshua said in the context of abiding in Him, fellowshipping with Him. We looked at this in the Gospel, John fifteen eleven. These things, that these things, is everything He's just said in the previous ten verses that talk about abiding in Christ. If you abide in Me, My Word abides in you. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You know, and He's talking about producing fruit, but you got to be abiding in the vine. He's talking about the same idea of fellowship. He says, these things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And he's talking about fellowship. Again, so you want to have joy, then you fellowship with the Father. You fellowship with the Son. This is what it's all about. This is where joy comes from. Look what David wrote in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When David said to the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy, he means that nearness to God, nearness to God Himself is the only all-satisfying experience in the universe. God created us, and He created us to live in fellowship with Him, and only as we do that will we know joy. In His fullest sense, Now, there's a Greek variant here in this verse between our and your. If you got the King James here, it would say your joy. Some later manuscripts change our to your. King James is is in that class. But the original reading was probably our joy. Now, does our refer to John and the other first century disciples or to all believers? Well, because of the theological thrust of 1 John towards fellowship, I assume he's directing this to all believers, but... It could be also that John recognizes that his own joy will only come as the people he loves and ministers to walk in fellowship with God. And so their joy gives him joy. And, and that's what it's all about. He says, you know, I want that I, my, our joy will be full, but our joy is only full when your joy is full because we get our joy from seeing you walking with the Father. In uh, 3 John 4, a similar statement is expressed. He says, "I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in truth." See, that's the you know he he loves these people, he cares for these people, and he knows as they walk in the truth, they will have full fullness of joy. They'll experience life to the fullest, and that's what he cares about. Nothing will bring me joy like hearing you walk in the truth. You know, I think all parents understand this verse. They can, We could change it. We say, I have no greater heartache than to hear that my children don't walk in truth. You can take it either way, and it's the same thing, people. And I know the heartache of having children that don't walk in the truth. And when you're a Christian, when you love the Lord, it, it tears you apart. But the, that joy that comes from those you minister to, whether your own children or other children, when you're ministering to people, and they learn and they get it, and they walk in fellowship with God, they have a joy. Joy is not given to us apart from the circumstances of our earthly life or a substitute for pain or an escape from sorrow. Joy doesn't depend on the elimination of those things that weigh us down. It doesn't remove us from our circumstances. It just teaches us that when we walk in an intimate fellowship with God, nothing else matters. I mean, and you see this fleshed out in the Apostle Paul. Paul's out preaching the gospel. God wanted him to do that, right? Because of that, he gets whipped and stuck in the inner dungeon, okay? And what's he doing down there? He says, hey, let's sing. You know that song? You know, let, let, you know the hymn, you know, let's sing. You know? I mean, what's he doing singing in a prison when he's been beaten and he's stuck in stocks? You know what the Ameri- an American would do at that time? God, I thought you loved me. God, I thought you wanted me to wor- serve you and worship you. I'm trying to do what you want me to do, and look what you do for me. What kind of God is this that makes me so miserable? What kind of God is this that makes me unhappy? I heard the preacher right across here in the 7-Eleven, in the, the new church's meeting over there. Just two weeks ago, he said, God doesn't do that to people, and if God does, I don't want anything to do with them. And I said, you don't even know the God of the Bible, okay? You better get a little more familiar with your Bible. He was reading the story of Job. And he said, when Job said the Lord gave and the Lord took away, Job was delirious. He didn't mean that. That was wrong. The very next verse says in all this, Job did not sin or charge God wrongly. Okay, the Scripture says, you get to the very last chapter. and He says, God is chastising Job's friends and he says, Job's speaking the truth. You haven't spoke the truth like my servant Job has. But that preacher over there says, no, Job's a liar. He He was wrong. He said, God never killed anybody. And I'm like, have you not read your Bible? Joy doesn't come from circumstances. And the harder you try to get it from circumstances, the more miserable you will be. Joy only comes from walking in intimate fellowship with the God who created us. And He created us to share that, to be with Him. Joy is something that can grow and increase in our lives. It's something that can diminish and decrease in our lives. And this is because joy is a byproduct of fellowship with Christ. The more you fellowship, the greater your joy. So if you want joy, work on your fellowship. Now listen to me. You will never have fellowship with God apart from this. Okay? You will never do it. And that's why we encourage you, read your Bible. Read through it every year. Read your Bible every day. As you read it, you get to know God. He gave us this. so He said, here, I want you to know me. Here's everything about me. And we're like, I ain't got time. I love God, but I ain't got time to spend with Him. That wouldn't fly in any relationship, people. And you'll never have deep fellowship with the Father. All right, let's uh, save a little before for next time. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your love for us. Lord, that you created us, and in our sinfulness, we walked away from you, and yet you made provision to bring us home through the death of your son. You loved us, and you gave us eternal life with you. And Father, you desire to have fellowship with us. I pray that we would learn, Lord, the meaning of abiding in you, walking with you, fellowshiping with you, that joy. Will be a constant in our lives thank you lord for your grace to us we love you we thank you for the provision you've made for us lord i pray that as we go through this little epistle of first john that you would teach us i pray you would teach me give us an understanding of fellowship with you that we may walk in an intimate relationship with you lord thank you amen